It's August. The humidity is still raging. Ice cream trucks are rolling down the street. And people that prevailed in this month's primary are ramping up for the general election. So on this edition of Politically Speaking, we look at three different events that could affect how voters decide in November. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Colleague Joe Manis. And it's August. It's after the primary. It's not super exciting yet. Some would say it's the August doldrums, but we have enough material. Yeah, well, we've been actually... Actually, we've been working... Both of us have been working our tail off on various things, some of which you'll read or hear about later in more detail and some stuff we've had now. But there's no question that um, August, I think, is the time when a lot of issues get set. A lot of uh, uh, both uh, in many cases, especially the Senate race, uh, both sides and their allies try to kind of set the groundwork of where they're going and try to um, uh, label the other candidate as either this or that. Well, let's talk about the Senate race because that's clearly becoming the biggest contest in the entire state. It already was, but during the primary season, those primaries were kind of operating in the background, for us at least. And one of the things that's coming closer is that U.S. Senator Claire McCaskill is about to meet with Brett Kavanaugh, President Trump's nominee to the Supreme Court. It's a topic we talked about a few weeks ago, but it was really kind of almost a philosophical exercise because we didn't actually know who the nominee was. Now that we do, McCaskill is one of a handful of vulnerable Democratic senators who is meeting with Kavanaugh. And you caught up with her, I think, a couple days ago. Is that yes. right, Joe? Yes. And uh, she she talked extensively, got to interview her a bit, talked to her about this. And um, she already has said that she plans on meeting with him next Tuesday. Um, and that but what she did tell me was about how she's going to be focusing on a number of issues, not just reproductive rights. In fact, she doesn't think he's going to talk about it. Well, I'm, I'm sure that will come up. He won't answer it. Um, but there are other topics that I want to cover that are very important. Um, workers' rights, uh, the David and Goliath issues. We have such consolidation of corporations in this country today, such power in major corporations and the chances of a little guy taking on uh, giant corporations. I want to, I'm looking at his cases now, looking at his decisions and cases where um, it was uh, somebody trying to take on uh, the system, so to speak. Attorney General Josh Hawley, who we've mentioned before, has made the Kavanaugh issue pretty pretty large in his opposition I campaign. I would say it's a centerpiece right now, and it's been a centerpiece along with a couple other things, but it's been his key centerpiece for probably a couple months almost. My view is she ought, to be, she ought to be voting for him, number one. She ought to be challenging her party to vote for him and to give him a fair hearing and to stop this delay, delay, delay. So I hope that she'll stand up and lead, but she's not so far. Yeah, I got him actually the day after the uh, primary when, when it was clear that he was definitely the nominee and she was definitely the Democratic nominee. And so he started, this is when he started carrying this uh, trailer around that has uh, little a little debate platforms on it, has some festooned with some patriotic stuff, and he's claiming he's, well, he has been traveling the state with it 
trying to get her to agree to debates and is offering just to have her stand with him on this trailer as they go around the state. Chances are that's not going to happen. She wants him, by the way, to do some town halls, and he's so far has the signal he's interested in doing that. So they're both playing. They're they're both kind of dancing around. They'll do debates, but they're both dancing around on the uh, format right now. So as you wrote about for St. Louis Public Radio this week, both sides, both you know, progressive activists and conservative activists, are, are pressuring McCaskill on Kavanaugh. The thing that I'm kind of wondering is, let let's say that McCaskill votes for Kavanaugh's nomination. Is that really gonna? Are Republicans just gonna vote for her in mass because of that? Are conservative activists gonna say, "Wow, great job, Claire McCaskill"? Now we're gonna support you a hundred percent. It just doesn't seem like that's a likely outcome if she decides to vote for his nomination. No, I think in some ways. I mean, while she says she's getting pressure from both sides, here's my take. I mean, but I'm just some old old journalist talking about this. I agree with you, Jason. I don't see for her the upside of voting. For, and we're just talking about the, the politics, not about policy. The, from a political standpoint, she, there isn't much of an upside for her to vote for him because, like you say, the Republicans who are pressuring her to vote for him, they're not going to vote for her anyway because they got other, other objections with, with her. They'll just feel that they have uh, succeeded in pressuring her to vote for him because they'll still point out that she didn't vote for Gorsuch last year. What it will do, I think it would really tamp down the enthusiasm of some of the progressives, uh, especially women's groups, who right now are working hard for her. I mean, because she is trying not to get caught in being labeled as a progressive. She's trying to be labeled as a moderate. But frankly, in Missouri, while that can get her some votes from independents and stuff like that, the progressives are the ones who are real energized right now. So while she may not want to throw her hat totally with them, I'm not sure she can afford to tick them off by doing something like voting for Kavanaugh. Because it's not just about his abortion position. I mean, you've got um, gay rights groups of the LGBT community that really doesn't like him because of some of the decisions they feel he's had. You've got environmental groups who are after him. You've got uh, a number of uh groups that feel like he's been too friendly with corporations. I thought it was interesting that she was talking about how she's going to pressure him on his views on corporations, because I think ultimately she will decide not to vote for him, but she won't cite reproductive rights. She will cite his stance on corporate issues, possibly health care. That's my prediction, and I could be totally wrong. What do you think that, let's say uh, Senator McCaskill votes against uh, Kavanaugh's nomination. What do you think that gains for, for Holly? Maybe it's possible that he can telegraph that vote to rural voters who really care about abortion policy or gun rights or whatever. Um, wh- what do you think Holly has to gain from this, this, considering he's making it such a big part of his campaign? Well, I think from a political standpoint, he would gain from the standpoint that he can tell the conservative Republican base that I'm your guy, and um, if I had been in the Senate, I would have voted for him. Actually, this this brings up, and I'm probably off base on this, but I really think in some ways the Senate is making a mistake by voting for it before the November election. If I were McConnell, I would try to schedule it after the November election or even in January, um, saying that, look, if we're still in control— 
uh, you'd have people like Josh Hawley who would then be a guaranteed vote for him. Now, it may be that it's considered too risky because there's no guarantee the Republicans are going to stay in control. Yeah, I think Mitch McConnell, I think his goal is less short-term electoral gain and more long-term policy gain yes, on the court. It, it, exactly, because, I mean, that's why he blocked um, Merrick Garland from getting even a hearings or a vote two years ago in 2016, President Obama's last choice for the Supreme Court. So you've got some, uh, many uh, Democratic or progressive groups who are still furious about that, feeling that they were robbed well, I, I'm putting I'm putting quotes around that. But I will say that's never happened before where you had somebody who didn't get at least a hearing. But that said, I, I think Garland would have failed in an up and down vote. Well, probably so. This adds to the backdrop. This adds to the tension. I think it was inter- interested me that Concerned Women for America, which is driving this bus around the Midwest mainly, uh, promoting their support for Kavanaugh. And they've been driving all over Missouri this week. Um the fact that they were here, and I think part of it is to galvanize the base so that they will put pressure on McCaskill, and whether he she votes for him or not, the idea is to galvanize the base behind Hawley by saying, look, if he had been there or if he is there, you won't be dealing with this. I mean, I, I think it's part of it's to galvanize the base on both sides. I want to talk about another part of what McCaskill told you and, and another focus that she's going to bring when she meets with Kavanaugh next Tuesday, and that is unidentified political contributions, which is obviously something we've talked about a lot on this show, but it's something that is just, frankly, an epidemic on a federal level. On both sides. Um, You know, the Citizens United case was a very activist Supreme Court that was um, writing law. They weren't interpreting precedent. Um, That and another case that called corporations people. Our founding fathers didn't even trust corporations, much less enshrine them with the status of a person. Uh, So I want to go down that path, that activism this court has had around corporate power, and especially as it relates to dark money and political campaigns. I'm guesstimating that before this campaign is over, 80% of the money that is spent for Josh Hawley will come from behind the curtain. Dark money, nobody will ever know who... who, uh, who made those expenditures. That's not right. Uh, we shouldn't have our elections hijacked by anonymous sources. Uh, you know, if, if, if you want to decide that you can give unlimited money, at a minimum it has to be disclosed. And that's why I have um, uh, supported and co-sponsored the Disclose Act. Uh, it's a very big difference between me and Josh Hawley. He believes very much that there's nothing wrong with dark money. Um, and I, I want to talk to Judge Kavanaugh about his his decisions and his writings as it relates to this new, modern, different way that campaigns are being conducted without anybody knowing who's paying the bill. It's not just Holly, though, who's been unquestionably benefiting from undisclosed money. I mean, that's not really in question. McCaskill is as well, and she would readily admit that. Yes. Uh, I mean, there has been, if you take her count and Holly's count, um, we're talking about $28 million so far. About 18 she claims, has been spent against her by outside groups for him. He says about $10 million against him for her. Uh, most of that uh, linked to um, 
Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. There is a group, I think, called the Senate Majority. I think it's just Senate Majority PAC. which yes, is which Senate Majority PAC. Which does disclose its donors. Yes. But when you actually look at its FEC reports, a lot of its money comes from a 501c4 called Majority Forward, I believe. So that's one instance where you, you have Democratic secret money benefiting candidates like McCaskill. The other way that's a bit more indirect is undisclosed money that's going into ballot initiatives that will likely help Democratic candidates, namely the uh, uh, effort to raise the minimum wage to $12 an hour. Now, this is something that I reported on last year when I started noticing that a lot of 501c4 money was going into Raise Up Missouri. And the biggest contributor of this was a group called the 1630 Fund, which as of like 10 minutes ago has donated a million dollars to that particular campaign. I actually sent an email to the executive director of that group, and he said flatly, we're not telling you who our donors are. There's another group called the Fairness Project that's given money to raise up Missouri. But unlike other 501c4s, they've told other media outlets that they are funded at least somewhat by labor unions. I think the reason I, I I'm not trying to say like this is equivalent to like you know a new Missouri or our Republican 501c4s which are clearly spending more money. Democrats have made quote unquote dark money a big rhetorical issue both in the state and nationally. Yet, yet they're unclear they're clearly benefiting from this practice too. And I hear the I hear the the argument when 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 we pressed for example state representative Gina Mitten about, you know, should Democrats not support some of these campaigns that are benefiting from dark money? This is the response what we usually get. Personally, I don't think that it matters if the money's washed once or 10 times. It shouldn't be washed at all. I mean, do you think that the Missouri Democratic Party should reevaluate whether they support that initiative until they're more clear about their finances? No, that I do not believe. You know, unfortunately, th- these are these are the rules under which we're playing today. And I don't like the rules. I don't think that this is how it should work. I would uh, personally feel much better if the 501c4s were doing the right thing on their own, regardless of being forced to. But I also think that the minimum wage is very important. And um, and and as the clip, you know, as was mentioned in the clip, um, these are the rules under which we're playing. So, Joe, I mean, I've heard that a lot. And I understand people like Representative Mitten want to support raising the minimum wage because they agree with the policy. But how do you prevent like the explosion of of undisclosed money in 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 groups of all ideologies if you're just saying, well, we don't like it, but we like the policy, so we're, we're not going to do anything about it. Well, the only way you can do something about it is to pass laws. And frankly, while I think um, a state, some state laws could be passed, and there's been pressure on that for years, it hasn't gone anywhere. I mean, basically what the, what the proposed state laws, the bottom line is they would require that 501c4s, which is uh, an IRS uh, classification, that allows these groups to collect unlimited amounts from unknown people, allegedly no more than 49% of their money, <coughs> excuse me, is supposed to be used for camp- political campaigns, but there's really no, no way to police it. So um, the state, I mean, there have been proposals to require that any of these groups that are active in Missouri campaigns have to identify their donors. There are other states, including the state of New York, 
that do require that. So, so far, that's been made legal. But frankly, probably the only way to do it would be if Congress passed something um, that that really dealt with this. And frankly, I don't see that happening. Actually, that's a point that McCaskill made a few months ago when I asked her, would she support ballot initiatives having to disclose 501c4 money? I think all of this money needs to come out in the sunshine. I don't care if it's for a ballot issue or for a candidate. Um, you know, I think all of it needs to be disclosed. We have got a bill to require disclosure, and um, it has it has unfortunately not gotten enough Republican votes. Frankly, Mitch McConnell is our biggest problem because he is a big believer in dark money. He thinks they always win the fight with dark money. So he's the one who blocks our ability to actually get it done. Um, if we were to take the majority back, I would assume that would be one of our first agenda items. I do want to point to something about the 1630 fund, because Politico actually wrote about that particular group a couple weeks ago and was talking about how that group, which again is a 501c4 that doesn't have to disclose its donors, has been funding a lot of other groups around the country called like Floridians for a Fair Shake, Michigan Families for Economic Prosperity, North Carolinians for a Fair Economy. And oftentimes those groups like attack Republican House members. So clearly this group is part of a coordinated left of center effort to try to help Democratic candidates. And it brings me to a question about the minimum wage uh, increase in particular. It seems like it's not a coincidence that money flows to minimum wage increase ballot items when there's a Democratic senator on the ballot. I mean, is that a yeah. fair is that a fair thing to, to point yeah. out? Yeah, No, I think it's a fair thing to point out. Now, what's interesting, the first time that happened in 2006, most many reporters, including myself, didn't really notice it, pay much attention to it. We wrote a little bit about it, but until afterwards. And then all these um, people who were involved in the campaigns were saying that, well, that vote got over 60 percent, I mean, uh, of the support for the minimum wage hike. And they believed that that helped provide some extra votes for McCaskill. Now, to tell you the truth, I mean, I'm not sure if that is the case. I personally think in 2006 that she benefited the most from the fight over the stem cell research. I was going to say, stem cell was such a bigger issue than that. Because if you look at the vote totals, uh, stem cell uh, protections passed narrowly. And McCaskill, who supported uh, protecting stem cell research, won by a very similar amount. So that, yeah. So and, it, I, and I also that, want to I be clear, was Republicans driver. have also placed stuff on the ballot to help yes. Republican candidates. They, they did, did that, it with the guns. They did that all throughout Nixon's administration. So I, I want to make it clear that this is not a Democratic phenomenon. I do wonder, though, um, how a, you know, a minimum wage worker feels that the only time they're ever going to get a chance to get a minimum wage increase in Missouri is just when a Democratic senator is running for a competitive election. It's- well, it's because the General Assembly, I mean, which is called, re- controlled by Republicans, has never taken this up. What they did after the 2006 uh, measure passed was try to pass some stuff to limit its its um get rid of the inflationary yeah, increase which, yeah, d- which which they were never successful in doing for various reasons yeah but the point is is that so they've never been a fan of it and um, i'm curious how this plays out this time because again just as in 2006 there's other issues on the ballot that i think will 
get more attention, mainly the clean Missouri. Um, which we'll be talking about in the weeks to come. Yes. The, the last topic I want to get to today is the auditor's race, which I've said on this show before. While it's certainly not going to get as much attention as the McCaskill-Holly race, it could have longer-term ramifications down the road. Yes. Not only because of clean Missouri, because the auditor plays a big role in picking the demographer, but also just because Nicole Galloway, the incumbent auditor, is widely seen as a gubernatorial or U.S. Senate candidate in the future. So that race uh, for the GOP side was a bit of a surprise. We A lot of us were expecting either Paul Kurtman or David Wassinger to pull pull that off because they were the candidates with either the most money or the most like endorsements. Instead, Sandra McDowell, who's a Jefferson City attorney, won by a pretty decent margin. Um, but the thing that's come out after that is there, I think, is some concern among Republicans about, A, the fact that she hasn't raised a lot of money. She only raised about, I don't know, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000, which is impressive when you think about it, that she won a statewide race raising that little little amount of money. The other thing, though, is that she didn't physically move to the state until eight years ago. And if you look at the Missouri Constitution, it says that the auditor has to have the same qualifications as the governor, and there's a 10-year minimum age. Uh, residency. A residency. I was about to say 10, 10-year age requirement, <laughs> but I think that kind of goes without saying. Um what have you heard about this? Because I've been kind of heard a couple of rumblings from, you know, Democrats who talk to Republicans, and they're they're actually quite concerned about the residency thing, um, even though uh, McDowell has said in a statement that she feels that she qualifies because she had an intent to move to Missouri more than 10 years ago. What do you, what do you think about this? Well, I think just looking at it, I mean, I'm no lawyer, but just looking at it from the from just what we know, I think she does have an issue. I think a problem. I think the question is going to be how far do either side push it? Her case, okay, <laughs> McDowell's victory is so reminiscent to me of the 1992 victory of Judy Moriarty for for the Democratic nomination for Secretary of State. It was a similar situation. Four people, only one woman. Several of the men were considered more qualified. They were the ones spending all the money. There was an assumption um, that one or two of them had the inside track to win. She came out of nowhere. And the Democratic Party was deciding how to embrace her. Uh, then uh, Mel Carnahan, who was then the uh, gubernatorial nominee, decided to embrace her. And she traveled around uh, with the rest of the Democratic ticket this and that, but it turned out within a year after she was in office, there was already proceedings to get her impeached uh, for some nepotism stuff. But my point being is that the Democrats had to decide, okay, she wasn't the one we wanted. We'll do what we can. We don't know if she's really qualified, but we'll go ahead and do it. Now, fast forward uh, 26 years, you've got Republicans sort of in a similar situation. I've been hearing rumors that the Republicans may be deciding whether or not to try to press some sort of legal action so they can get her off the ballot and replace her with, let's say, Wassinger or Kurtman. But, but according to the Casey Starr, apparently you have to be a candidate to actually have standing. And I don't, I don't know if like Nicole Galloway would press that would press this in court because you would think that this would be an easy way to attack McDowell in the campaign. Yeah, but couldn't Kurtman or Wassinger do it? I have no idea. I mean, I, 
I'm just speculating. But here's the question. Why didn't they do that during the primary? That's a good point. Well, it's because they didn't see her as a serious threat. She was any campaigning she did was outstate. Uh, Wassinger and Kurtman, by the way, are both from the St. Louis area. I think they just assumed that one of them was going to get it. So um, Wassinger had by far the most money. He ran a few ads. I think that she she was considered a non-factor until election night. And all of a sudden it became clear that not only was she factor, she was the nominee. But I actually think the bigger issue for her... I think the, the, the residency issue is a legitimate issue. Given well, I, th- I think on legal grounds, that's where she's got the I problem. I think her bigger problem, though, right now is the fact that she hasn't raised much money, whereas Galloway has raised well over a million dollars. I was ju- I just brought up how much money she has on hand. She has $3,168. This is, Mc- yeah, Mc- and I and I and you could be the, you could be the greatest candidate in the world. That is not enough money to win a statewide race under any circumstances. Well, especially now that you have campaign donation limits, so she can't have a savior come in and give her a million dollars or something. She can't do that. Now you could have somebody set up a PAC, or somebody could set up a five hundred one c four and raise some money on her behalf. But the thing is, I'm not sure if you've got some outside groups who are interested in that. But I think if I was the Republicans, in some ways, are in a similar situation to what they were in um, 2002 when, through some quirk, uh, a guy who ended up being a convicted felon who wasn't supposed to get the nomination for auditor got it. And Jim Talent actually had to publicly disavow I don't this think guy on his ticket. You know, I don't think we're at that point yet, but unless uh, Republicans want Jeff Mazur to be the demographer after Clean Missouri, <laughs> which is, I'm, I'm joking about that right now, but it's not not a super far out possibility if he applies for that and is not struck down by either the Republican or Democratic Senate leader. Uh, they need to get serious about the auditor's race. And maybe there's a calculation going on about whether they want to just, you know, try to help McDowell become a more financially robust candidate or if Republicans are just going to try to defeat clean Missouri altogether so the auditor's race kind of loses loses its importance there. I do know from talking with people that Republicans are going to be a lot more serious about defeating clean Missouri than they were, uh, you know, holding right to work. But that's a pretty low bar, to be honest. Yeah, and we can discuss that in more detail later. But I think the Republicans do have to decide what they're going to do with her. And also, uh, Josh Hawley, who's the Republican nominee for the U.S. Senate, I think he has to decide if, just as talent had to deal with this, similar issues I mentioned in 2002, how he deals with this. If he just kind of ignores this, or if um, he has to uh, say, oh, she's okay. I mean, I think it's it's just a headache that if you're either Holly or the state Republican Party that you just didn't want to deal with. But it should be noted, Jim Talent won in 2002. Yes, that's that, so, that was my kicker. So it kind of goes to my point that the, the auditor's race, while it is legitimately very important, and even when you take kind of the uh, external factors we're talking about, politically and with clean Missouri out of it. It's a very important office. 
it really doesn't play a huge role in in other campaigns, at least historically. Yeah, I mean, I remember Mel Carnahan back in the '90s was trying to knock off Margaret Kelly, who was the longtime Republican state auditor. He never succeeded. But but I I think that for the Democrats, though, the state auditor's race, I mean, just from a policy standpoint, is very important because the state Nicole Galloway is the only Democrat in, I mean, holding a statewide office in Jefferson That's City. That's not a U.S. senator, obviously. Well, the U.S. Senate, they're based in Washington. The point being that, that in the state capitol, those who run state government— She's the only Democrat among them. And we'll be talking more about that contest later in the election cycle for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long. 